I don't ever see America being a place where you don't need to still be aggressively battling for inclusivity in some way. I don't ever see a space where we can really fully take our foot off the gas when it comes to investing in bedrock institutions in our government at the state level to fight and make sure that we're having our rights protected every day. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Chris Scott, is a co-founder of a new national progressive pack called Advance the Electorate. They are dedicated to recruiting, training, and electing the next generation of progressive Democratic candidates and operatives. Chris has an interesting path to his position, having most recently worked as political director for Collective Pack and in a similar position at Democracy for America. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Chris at Advance the Electorate Pack. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Chris, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? My name is Christopher L.I. Scott. I got started in politics, interning for the late Congressman John Lewis, and at the same time working for President Obama's 2012 re-election campaign. And so when you start, I think, working in those two spaces with those two type of figures, I literally owe everything to getting started in that type of space. And that really kind of catapulted me going forward, especially with Congressman Lewis. The first time I ever got made a director, he did my first ever fundraiser for me and really shaped a lot of how I treat my staff to just how I have opinions on a lot of things was really instrumental in that because of how his office poured into me when I was an intern during grad school. Where'd you grow up? Originally born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, I always tell people that is a huge part of my persona, my identity, everything that I am comes from that city and those lessons that were instilled in me, the hard work, ethic, the grit, the grind of everything. I am the type of person that will go in a room and say, hi, I'm Chris Scott and I'm from Detroit and everybody kind of laughs. But, you know, I think it's kind of like people from New York and people L.A. Detroit is one of those cities that people are really proud to be from. And it definitely was a huge impact on my life. Were you political as a kid? Were your parents political? No. So the funny thing is my dad was in the military for 28 years. My mom used to be a television producer and produce 
commercials for Ford Motor Company back in 80s. And so even though I know I wanted to go in politics long term, that wasn't my immediate focus. I actually wanted to start with media and film, which is where I have my bachelor's in, is in film production, and my master's is in strategic communication. And what kind of shifted things for me was being in grad school in Detroit, going through bankruptcy. And I just remember how much it affected me because it was the main topic of conversation, even in my grad school classes about this great American city not getting bailed out. And so that kind of expedited the timeline. But growing up, I thought I was going to start doing film and also having a military career and then by my 30s, maybe making that shift to politics. So how did you land with John Lewis? That sounds like it must have been a great break. It's funny how it happens. And I'm a big person in my faith. And I say, God doesn't make mistakes. And so I was in grad school. I went to American University. Congressman Lewis is also a fraternity brother of mine, Phi Beta Sigma Fraternity Incorporated. And so his scheduler had an event for members of the fraternity at his office. And so when we came, he said, if anybody ever wants to intern, follow up with me. I was the only person to follow up and got an internship literally two months later because I was the one that took charge and asked for the internship. And it was funny because I got to work really closely with his communications director, Brenda Lawrence, who has gone on to work for the White House afterwards. And it was a different angle because at that time, I think they had never had somebody from a communications background do an internship. And so I got a chance to interview the congressman for multiple magazine publications. I got to write introductory speeches for him during my internship. And again, like, just that type of hands-on experience, because I think a lot of people, when they think about the Hill, you don't necessarily always think of interns getting to work on stuff like that. But from his scheduler, his comms director, his legislative assistant that ends up publishing a graphic novel, like I worked really closely with all of them, as well as the chief of staff. And again, like I just wanted everything because when do you get a chance to be in an environment like that? And I don't think I fully understand who I was working for until after I left the internship. Like you hear the name. And I remember, I think it was literally like my second day on the job and Shaquille O'Neal walks in the office to have a meeting and do a photo op. And I'm just like, wow, like this is really a different type of opportunity that's special and really can have a huge impact on your career if you pour into it the way that it could pour into you. I read his autobiography, Walking with the Wind, I remember, and obviously followed his career on the house floor and things like that. But I don't know the guy. You got to talk to him a reasonable amount. What would surprise people about what you observed? What did he feel like to you? I think people are used to having figures that are that large of life, having an ego, and there's no ego at all with them. The level of humility, kindness that he just always exuded, the way he treated his interns and actually took the time to get to know them. And again, 
to have an internship. And then years later, he comes and do, does a fundraiser. That's the type of man that he really was. And I think it really was a blessing to even know him remotely. And I don't pretend like I uh, know him, know him, but to say like, I got to be in private rooms, even outside of the internship. I remember, I think the last time I saw him that we really got to have a meaningful conversation was at the DNC in 2016 in Philadelphia. I was working for the Ohio Democratic Party And so he was speaking at our breakfast that morning. And so his chief of staff sees me and the congressman sees me and we all sit down and we end up having a private lunch together after the breakfast and just got to talk out. And I remember the funniest thing, he was complaining because his chief of staff wouldn't let him have bacon that morning. He's like, Chris, he won't even let me have one slice of bacon. He was such a kind and amazing person. And at the same time, this political titan. I mean, you said you took some lessons from how he treated staff and and used them in your own work. What, what else do you remember that you try to do? I asked him before I left the internship was just, How do you stay in the business for as long as you do without letting it corrupt you? And I think as a young mind at that time, I think you hear so much about how politics can change people. And what he told me was, you just have your line and you make sure you never cross it. There's times that you might be pushed close to that line, but as long as you make sure you always remember where that line is, you will be okay. Can you sort of trace for me? your career through those early political jobs that you have after that, what were the key things that happened to you or the the jobs that you did? Yeah. So from the start, I actually took a break from that internship to go work in Hamilton County, which is where Cincinnati was in Ohio, right when Hamilton County was for the first time starting to flip on a regular basis and become deeply Democratic, was really in that 2012 Obama campaign. So I took a break from the internship went and worked the last two months in Ohio. And I think for folks that are listening, everybody knows the type of battleground state Ohio used to be, and really still is to a degree that has the makings that it can awaken again. But when you start in a state like that, on a presidential like that, it puts you in the conversations in a lot of rooms in the future. And so uh, my next campaign after that was going down to Texas to do the Wendy Davis 2014 gubernatorial because a lot of Obama staffers from Colorado, Ohio, Virginia all went down to Texas to go work for a battleground Texas to try to flip the state there. From there, I end up doing the Houston mayor's race in 2015. I end up doing some part-time consulting on a congressional race there and then leaving for Ohio in 2016, where I remained through 2020. And so in Ohio, I was the minority engagement manager for the state Democratic Party. And then from there, after about a year and a half on that job, I end up becoming the interim executive director for Ohio Legislative Black Caucus, which is actually the oldest legislative Black Caucus, even older than the CBC, which I think is a fact that a lot of people don't know, and end up becoming the full-time executive director by 2018. And I think I'm 
27, 28 at this point. So your career is really starting to transform and rise quickly. That position really catapulted me to give me a chance to eventually move to the national stage. And so I do state's attorney, Kim Fox. I was her deputy campaign manager to get her through her primary in 2020. And because of that race, I end up going to work for the collective PAC as their national political director later on that summer. And then from there, that takes me and I get plucked by Democracy for America to be their first ever chief political officer. And so I wrote our entire electoral strategy. I also oversaw our communication, our organizing and our political departments as well. I've talked to people from Collective PAC and also from Democracy for America. Can you catch me up on those two organizations? Like, how are they doing and, you know, what, what did you learn there? So unfortunately, Democracy for America ended up uh, closing down last December after 19 years of existence. And I think it kind of speaks to also the hard political climate that we're in, especially for progressive organizations right now. But that organization was really stalwart leader in the progressive movement, especially when it came to focusing on data-driven grassroots organizing, really taking that Obama model who really took it from uh, Howard Dean's first campaign. And you have this organization that does that on a regular basis with every candidate endorsed. And then you have an organization like the Collective PAC, People are so used to the Congressional Black Caucus, but you didn't have a lot of Black PACs until Collective comes on the scene. Is that Stephanie Brown James that I talked to? Stephanie Brown James and Quinn James. And so I worked for them uh, about a year as their national political director and really got an opportunity that they trusted me to take their political program to scale. So when I was with them, um, at that time, we ended up winning the most races we had ever won. I think we won, if I recall, 67 of the 125 that we endorsed in 2020. And we had flipped seats on every single level of government that we engaged in that year. But for me, I've always been extremely particular for who I work for. It's a big part of I want to work for organizations that allow me to pour into my community, being African-American, but also uh, allows me to pour in and invest in, you know, other marginalized communities and candidates. So you're talking about younger candidates and younger voters. You're talking about Latino candidates and voters. And so I've always gotten the opportunity to be unapologetic and very particular for who I work for. And I think that's a blessing in itself because I think a lot of times you can get in politics and you just kind of follow along uh, and everybody doesn't always get the opportunity or take the opportunity to pick what they choose to invest in and work on for a day to day. And when you love what you do and who you work for, it doesn't feel like work. Your publicist reached out to me and said, Chris is starting a pack called Advance the Electorate. Correct. Is that correct? And correct. you have a co-founder? 
Yes, my co-founder is Christine Centino. She was a senior electoral manager under me at Democracy for America. But it's funny because we looked at our backgrounds and we've been in so many of the same spaces throughout our career and had never met until I hired her at DFA. And so we both did Obama in 12. We've both worked for the traditional Democratic Party. She's worked for the Democratic municipal officials, organizations. But at the same time, we've both She's worked for unapologetic Latino organizations, whereas I've done it for Black organizations. And so it's interesting that we're able to come together. And what really brought us together was after DFA collapsed, there obviously was going to be a hole in a progressive space. But at the same time, I remember uh, when it was collapsing, I had just got done writing like our outline plan to go to 2030 elections and mapping out all the future election cycles, what I thought was going to be races that were important. And so that work still has to get done. Even though we've been in great spaces, we've also seen what it means when programs we care about don't receive the funding that they probably actually deserve. And so we were like, you know what, let's just take the leap and let's do it because this work still has to be done at the end of the day. And so our mission, we created Advanced Electorate Pact to recruit, train and elect the next generation of progressive operatives and candidates. And by focusing on statewide judicial and state legislative races, we hope to transform the political landscape and build a more inclusive democracy. I suspect that a lot of people hearing that, even though you say there's a hole because of DFA, are wondering to themselves, why do we need another progressive PAC aimed at yet another subset of candidates? I'm not sure what level of skepticism to bring to it. I mean, I'm glad that you're in the fight and I'm interested to hear what you're doing, but can you go into more detail about like why you think it's needed and why you think that the two of you can do something valuable? Well, I think it's twofold. I think it starts with the type of candidate that we endorse. So we only endorse candidates as defined from the new American majority. So that means they have to be black, Latino, or another person of color either under 41 or an unmarried woman. And so I know new American majority is more of a nuanced term that's just now starting to pop up. But when you look at spaces on the representation side, you still do not have equal representation, especially when it comes to Black, Latino, and younger candidates as well. And you don't have a lot of organizations that intentionally focus on that long-term. And then on the other side, the type of races that we endorse while we invest in congressional races and we're very targeted with the congressional races we'll pick up, we have a long-term goal of investing in statewide judicial and state legislative races. And I think the importance of that is you don't have a lot of national democratic organizations that intentionally focus on the state as much as they focus on the federal. And I think as people are starting to realize 
when you don't have investment there, how detrimental it can actually be to the integrity and the structure of our democracy. And so that work definitely has to be done. And I think for both me and Christine, we have been incredibly successful in our career, not just winning at the federal level, but winning with statewide judicial and legislative races. And so that is also real love language for us. Part of the job is making people understand why those seats are just as important as the congressional seats as well when it comes to their everyday life. And I'll argue with anybody that those seats are more impactful on your day-to-day life than even what's happening in Congress. And so you got to be able to do both, I think, as Democrats. And the last thing I will say with that is we're a hybrid pack. So we have both our pack and we have a super pack from the jump. And when you talk about candidates of color, younger candidates, and judicial and legislative races possibly being able to have not just endorsement and wraparound services on the hard side, but also have possible super PAC support as well to win, you're really starting a conversation then of being able to really transform and shift some things. The way that we see Republicans have been doing this at least for the last 20 years. And so part of it is we have to catch up as the Democratic Party as a whole, making plans that we can be successful in the medium and long term. Having talked to a lot of people who've tried to start organizations, some which have done very well and some which haven't, I know it's it's not easy. There's a lot of barriers to getting the donors that you need to pulling together a functioning organization to just sort of attaining credibility and functioning well. Tell me about the steps you guys have taken so far and how are things going? Yeah. And we wanted to be very intentional on not hiring staff until we felt like we could actually see a projection where that staff could have stability, especially coming from this situation where we just had a stalwart collapse. That's important. And so right now, we are not releasing endorsements, our first set of endorsements until November. We're not even opening up our endorsement process until October. And so really right now, a big part of our work is just making sure we raise the money so that we can be able to come in and be effective the way that we feel like we need to be effective from the outset. I think sometimes, especially even with progressive orgs, I think there is uh, expectations that they're not necessarily going to always raise as much money when they're first coming into a space. And so we're trying to change that. We definitely want to end up spending at least $1.5 million in next year's election. So that means we have to pound the pavement from the start. And that's a combination of being able to raise money from high-end donors, but also having a really robust grassroots donor base from the outset. And the other thing I would say about 8-pack, from our logo to everything, this is something that looks and feels different than politics and how it usually does, down from how we cater the community 
piece we cater to to just the look and the feel of it we want it to be a little bit more rugged at times it has to have that appeal to the people that typically don't even want to engage with politics because they're oftentimes the last people to be talked to they're the voters and candidates that will get the ninth hour support but don't necessarily get the early primary support that's kind of where we are is a heavy focus on fundraising so we have a couple of fundraisers coming up in Philadelphia and Long Beach next month. And then we'll be going down to Orlando and Miami in November to also raise money while at the same time doing uh, call time with donors that we've met over the years from our various positions as well. If you're picking up some of the banner of of plans that you had for D of A, can you go to their donors and say, I'm trying to do what we should have done? Yeah, well, I think that's one of the advantages is that I was fortunate enough with DFA of I had a good amount of donors that it was my responsibility to raise money for. But at the same time, also, I was the person that since I wrote the long-term memos, I wrote the long-term strategy plans, I also got to do a lot of those briefings with those donors on, you know, here's the individual races you should be investing in, but also this is how you should be looking at it as a whole for how you invest in politics takes long term. And it gives us a little bit of advantage with that. Now you still got to do the work to convince them of why they should invest in something like this. But at least I think it gives us a better starting point than I think sometimes a lot of people have when they start PACs. It's not a surprise when an organization collapses that a PAC starts, but being able from day one to have good media relationships and good possible relationships with donors and also have candidates that really already buy into you because they've worked with you over the years and are waiting to apply for your endorsement gives you definitely, uh, I think, a leg up. And I think it's the right time. It's 2023. It's right before a major presidential year. Uh, But also, you know, I know we say every election is the most consequential, but it seems like the last three presidentials we have, the stakes just keep getting higher and higher as we go into these things. And so it's also just the right time to be launching something like this. And again, whether or not you're progressive or you're more moderate, the gaps that exist in democratic investment and how we message those aren't going anywhere and you have to have more organizations that speak to those things. There's absolutely oodles of groups looking for money and there's a lot of talk about sort of donor fatigue, particularly at the large donor side, but also I think among everyday people that have been ramped up repeatedly because of the election crises we've been in. What are you experiencing now as you pitch this? There is definitely donor fatigue, and I think that's really stemming and stretching from last year. I think everybody that works in the political space, if you weren't like the DSCC, DCCC, or DNC, I think a lot of organizations that have a specific focus have seen donors a lot more fatigued and just tired. For Democratic donors, I think 
they're not always used to the high level of regular engagement cycle to cycle to cycle. Whereas I think Republican donors are already in that mindset and they're ready to go over war with those things. And then I think also we're at a time where our politics is very polarized. And I think that's a turnoff to a lot of people as well. And so I remember even when I was at DFA, there were folks that lowered their given, not because they didn't still believe in the mission, but they're just like, I'm tired of the political polarization. I want to do more C3 work or I want to do more C4 stuff. And so I think we're also seeing that you have to do kind of a re-education of why it is still very important to give politically both at the grassroots level, but especially at the high end level as well. And that we can't afford to just wake up in the middle of 24 and then decide, oh, now we want to start giving because by that time, it's really too late. I mean, we put ourselves in a really potentially compromising position, especially with an election like next year's. I'm thinking about this goal of a million and a half, and it takes an awful lot of time usually to pull that together for any project, but also it's such a drop in the bucket in politics, as you know. How do you think about choosing that goal? And when you think longer term, like if is this something you want to do for a decade or two decades? And what would you like the trajectory to be for advance the electorate? I would love for 20 years later, advance the electorate uh, being seen as the face of the progressive movement of being a huge asset when it comes to partner and being like like an Emily's list sort of thing or what are you thinking? uh, Yeah, definitely. I would love for us when it comes to organizations that you think about that engage with candidates of color and progressive politics, I would love for us to be that face because what that means is also you've built up a huge repertoire of having great partnership across the landscape. I would love for us to be an organization that could be a bridge between traditional Democratic Party organizations and progressive organizations, because even though our ideology might not always be on the same page, there are times that we have to be in lockstep with how we're moving. That goes down to the name of why we pick Advanced Electorate. We wanted a name in an organization that could evolve with time, that couldn't just be pigeonholed and say, they're this niche niche thing and, you know, it might be there for a decade, but now we don't need it anymore. I don't ever see America being a place where you don't need to still be aggressively battling for inclusivity in some way. I don't ever see a space where we can really fully take our foot off the gas when it comes to investing in bedrock institutions in our government at the state level to fight and make sure that we're having our rights protected every day. When you look at America right now, it's really polarized and in a way that I don't think we've seen since like the 60s and how we're split. You look at what's happening in the South compared to states in the North and in the Midwest, and that really speaks to the climate that we're in right now. But yes, when you say Emily's List, even a Planned Parenthood 
you should definitely have that in a progressive space, especially when it comes to uh, an organization that is going to cater to what is really the base of the Democratic Party. And I don't see that base changing over the next 20 years. I see that base only expanding. When you look at millennials and Gen Zs are about around 42%, I think, uh, of eligible voters at this point. When you look at how much our country still continues to have immigration every day, that's only going to keep getting larger and larger. And so you have to have an organization that knows inherently how to tap into those communities. Because for me and my co-founder, Christine, it's our lived experience. A Black man and a Latina uh, woman running a political organization oftentimes has been unheard of. And to be able to create something successful that has standing power over the next 10 to 20 years, I would love that. I have a five-year-old son. If he chooses, he wants to go in politics. I would love for him to possibly say, dad, I want to possibly come work for this organization one day or even run the organization one day. That's what we're looking for. This isn't a short-term thing. It's not a hobby. It's a long-term investment to make sure that we are really giving America our best shot and we're making our democracy live up to the founding principles of our constitution that I think we've never fully gotten to, but we have a lot of the foundations to get there if we just choose to fight for it more. I uh, interviewed earlier today a guy who ran a pack for couple decades and shut it down a couple of years ago. He kind of felt like it maybe had had run its course and done what it needed to do. Anytime you start an organization, it'll either make it or not make it. It'll either die or sort of limp along or grow. Some of that is your efforts and your ingenuity. And some of that is just timing and luck and things like that. Is there anything that could happen that would tell you this is just not the right time? I may have to try a different idea. Well, I think the easy answer is if you're just not raising the money, if people aren't receptive to the idea of what you are trying to push with your organization and politics. And I think the biggest thing is To be successful in politics long term, you have to be able to be adaptable. You have to be able to say, this was the blueprint, but the landscape has shifted. How do we need to evolve and shift to still remain relevant to the current political time that we're in? And I think if you have that adaptability, I think so much when you start your own organization, this is like having uh, a kid. And so the principles and values you have, those are bedrock things, but they can't be so dogmatic where they can't ever adjust. And when you're not willing to do that, I think you run into the organ- problem that a lot of organizations that even if they've been around, why they eventually die out because they just cannot evolve quick enough with the times. And so for us, having that mindset from the outset of we know what's needed right now. We can even anticipate what we think is going to be the fight over the next 10 years. After you get towards after five and 10 years, you really don't know 
what's going to go on from there. But if you start with the mindset of we know this is going to have to continue to evolve based on the audiences we cater to and the things we invest in, I think that gives you an advantage. So why should uh, a person who has similar values to you, why should they contribute to your organization? What can they expect it would accomplish? When you invest a dollar in advanced electorate, you can be uh, confident that you are going to get the full bang for your buck and we are going to stretch that uh, dollar. We offer wraparound services. So we don't just endorse the candidate and then throw them a check. We work with the candidates on if they need to build a stronger communication plan, if they need to build a stronger field plan. And those are, I think, some of the intangibles that there are not a lot of organizations that can say they do that successfully on a regular basis. Now, obviously for us, we're a new organization, but I think what people are buying into right now is also the two people that founded this organization and the success that we have had throughout our careers. We've done five presidential campaigns between us. We have a combined 40 years of experience. And since 2018, we've endorsed over 300 candidates at the different organizations we've been at, but we've won over 160 of our races. So we have a history of also being successful. And we can say, if you invest your money in us, one, we're going to be transparent and you know how your dollar is being spent. But also we can guarantee that you will get your bang for your buck if you invest in this organization. So why would you pick a pack as the business model, we could call it? I mean, you could have formed a consulting firm. You could have gone out and charged campaigns money to deliver them advice and help them win or help them raise money directly rather than sort of more amorphously into your organization. Why did you settle on PAC? I look at PACs as the highest potential when it comes to being able to transform politics. I think if you have a successful national PAC, the type of influence you can have on the political spectrum within the party, but also with how communities trust politics, it is really PACs uh, that can be the face of that work. I think candidates come and go and they shift over time. Individuals are great, uh, but they are one person. PACs gives you the opportunity to build a team model that can be successful over time. I'm a huge sports person, so I look at it of this is how you create a franchise that has a history of winning. You have to have that within that space. We all have different roles that work, and I love the consultants that work in politics. But for me, myself personally, I see a PAC as always being the most instrumental in shifting things year after year after year in a political spectrum. I remember talking, not on this podcast, but before I started it to Ellen Malcolm, who had started Emily's List. That was kind of a much earlier era of, of starting political organizations, but she had some advantages, she felt, in being kind of business-minded and being willing to be systematic in how she structured things and how she went after fundraising. You've worked at a couple PACs. Your partner has similar experience. What do you think you see that maybe someone else 
who's trying to start something up right now doesn't about how to do this right? I think my biggest advantage is that I've always been really good at seeing the long game, but also I do a lot of the research for myself when I come into organizations. And of course, I'm going to apply that when I'm creating my own. And so the biggest thing that I will speak to is when I got the opportunity to be the executive director of the Ohio Legislative Black Caucus, the caucus was five years removed from scandal. They hadn't had an executive director in five years. It's pretty much like starting from scratch. I think we had $5,000 in the bank account when I got there. And you have to rebrand yourself. We used to be a huge moving piece and accountability partner when it came to democratic politics in Ohio. And so you have to recreate that. And in order to recreate that, you have to understand people. You have to understand climates and how they rapidly shift. And I think my biggest advantage is I'm not one of those people that was the poli-sci major. Again, I have my bachelor's in film production, and I have my master's in strategic communication. And that gives me a different mindset for how I approach politics in general. I look at it as constant case studies that you have to be able to see the granular stuff as well as the bigger picture at the same time and know how to mold and bring those two things together. And I think when you have a recipe that comes from not coming from the traditional political background, that gives you an advantage because you think about things differently than everybody else, even your partners. I think if I were a young man working on a political action committee like you are right now, I would work pretty hard to try to do different things than the people did 20 years ago. Like, I'd interviewed on this show a guy, Conscious Lee, who's a influencer on TikTok. And he, he must have a couple million followers now. He works to connect progressive organizations to his world. TikTok's pretty new, hasn't been around that many years. There are people out there in every sort of social media and other arena who have mastered it who care about politics, can you make a connection? Have you looked around at kind of that arena as a place to get donors, to get followers, to make an impact? Oh, absolutely. I think that's part of our business model. Again, we want something that's not politics as usual. And to be successful means you have to go in places where traditionally politics doesn't want to go. You have this common question of how do you really have success in engaging communities of color and young folks on social media? For me, I have built my success and got to where I was in my career from being able to do that before everybody else was working on that. And so I'll give you an example. When I was at the Ohio Legislative Black Caucus as their executive director, I combined running targeted digital ads with mailers at the exact same time. And so the strategy was if I could make the person who I wanted to turn out to vote and support our candidates and the ticket, 
I have to make so many impressions on them before they ever see it. And so when you could go and canvas a door and they just got your piece of mail, but they've also said, hey, I've been seeing your ads nonstop for the last few weeks. That's powerful because you're you're talking about, again, communities that typically do not get engaged early and often. And when you're able to tap into that and make them feel seen, that is a powerful mechanism to really build something transformational. And so influencers are some of the best brand ambassadors when it comes to politics, because even if you know me and you like what I'm talking about, some people are just disengaged to politics. So you also have to know how do we get other spokespeople that audiences do want to hear from more and get them to be able to carry the message of the brand too. And when you can tap into that, again, it's transformational long-term, I think. One of the things that you're inevitably have been asked and polling shows some leakage of people from what you're calling the new American majority, what other people call that into Trump land, into Republican land. And it's hard to know whether that persists past a poll into the ballot box, right? But we saw some movement both in African-American males like you and Hispanic women like your partner. What's your take on what's going on there if you have one and what can we do to combat that? Well, I think that's one of the things that I focused a lot on when I was at the Collective PAC and at Democracy for America in that I still think as the Democratic Party, we still have an engagement problem. I don't see the base of the Democratic Party unless something drastic happened. I don't see, you know, Republicans even pulling off necessarily 30 percent of black voters or 20 percent of Latino voters. But the thing is, when you do not intentionally engage and invest in those communities, you are going to start getting percentage points chipped away. And I think where you pay the consequences for that are especially at the state level where you're not able to win legislative uh, chambers because you're having enough of that population shift, or maybe you're not able to flip as many seats as you should be able to flip because you only need a few percentage points to keep that candidate that probably should be the representative for this work. I think Democrats have to be vigilant of not taking their base for granted. You have to be willing to still see them. And that means even if we can't get the policy passed, what I spoke about a lot in the media over the last two years was people don't always need you to be successful in policy, but they do need to know that you're fighting for a policy to make their life better. And you have to be able to communicate that. And I think that is where Republicans have done a very good job of starting to try to message of you're not getting this from the Democrats. And it's a lie. But if you don't have a counter to that message and say, actually, this is what we worked on and you've might have not felt the full impact, but we are trying to make sure that you get the impact. And if we can have the full control, now we can really work on those things together because people are fickle. And at the end of the day, I think the biggest problem that you have in politics is people don't trust it right now. But I think particularly 
the base of the Democratic Party, you have apathy from a lack of engagement and people don't necessarily feel the impact. And you got to find a way to message to them so that they could still feel it and know that you're actually doing that work. You might not always be in the majority, but you better fight like hell even when you're not in the majority. And you better let folks know that you're fighting like hell. Yeah, it's quite dangerous. If our team is apathetic, we're in trouble. Um, yeah. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? No, I think you've been great today. The last thing would be where people could go to find more information on APAC. Where can um, they go? So folks can go to 8action, that's A-T-E, action.org, find out about our mission, find out about our 2024 priorities. But of course, I will say early on, your investment financially is key uh, to being able to get off to a strong start and set a very strong foundation uh, moving forward in the future. Well, Chris, nice to meet you. Anything else you want to say? No, it's been a pleasure being on here, and hopefully we can have some more conversations in the future as well. That was Chris Scott. Chris is at ateaction.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.